Thanks very much. I am glad to be here. As usual, I have too many things to say, so I hope a little bit time tolerance can be counted on. Okay, let me go directly to the point. The 20th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall on November 9th should be the time to reflect. It is a commonplace to emphasize the miraculous nature of the disintegration of socialist regimes. It was, so we hear, like a dream come true. Something unimaginable happened. Something one couldn't consider possible even a couple of months earlier. Free elections, the disintegration of the communist regime, which collapsed like a house of cards and so on. Who in Poland could have imagined free elections with Lech Walesa as president? However, to this one should add an even that an even greater miracle was what happened only a couple of years later, the return of the ex-communists to power through free democratic elections. Valenza totally marginalized and much less popular than General Jaruzelski, who a decade and a half earlier crushed solidarity with the military coup d'etat. Why this reversal? The standard explanation evokes the immature expectations of the people who simply didn't possess a realistic image of capitalism. They wanted to have a cake and eat it. They wanted the capitalist democratic freedom and material abundance without paying the price for it, without losing the security and stability more or less guaranteed by the communist regimes. As the sarcastic Western commentators noted the reality of the noble struggle for freedom and justice turned out to be the craze for bananas and pornography. So when the unavoidable disappointment set in, it gave rise to three sometimes opposed, sometimes overlapping reactions in post-communist countries. First, the nostalgia for the good old communist times. Second, the rightist proto-fascist nationalist populism. Three, the renewed, belated anti-communist paranoia. The first two reactions are easy to comprehend. The communist nostalgia should not be taken too seriously. Far from expressing a serious wish to return to the grey socialist reality, it is more, I think, a form of mourning, of gently getting rid of the past. The rise of the rightist populism is also not an East European specialty. It's a common feature of all countries caught in the vortex of globalization. More interesting is the weird resurrection of anti-communism, almost two decades after the events. It, I think the reason, it's very mystical, I know, coming from that part, how after two, three years, communism more or less disappeared as a point of reference. Now, recently, in Croatia, in Czech Republic, in Hungary, in Slovenia, all of a sudden there is a new rise of anti-communism. Why? I think the reasoning behind it is a simple one. It's, this is the logic. If capitalism is really so much better than socialism, why are our lives still so miserable? If you really believe in capitalism, the only reply is that secretly the communists still rule. That, you know, we don't have real capitalism, but somehow capitalism manipulated by hidden communist elite. And then I try to explain to people, but this is capitalism, that capitalism is manipulated by elites and so on. So, it is an obvious fact that when people protested against communist regimes in Eastern Europe, the large majority of them did not ask for capitalism. They wanted solidarity and a rough kind of justice. They wanted the freedom to live their own life outside state control, to come together and talk as they please. They wanted a life of simple honesty and sincerity, liberated from the primitive ideological indoctrination and the prevailing cynical hypocrisy. As many perspicuous analysts observed, the ideals that led the protesters were to a large extent taken from the ruling socialist ideology itself. Does this mean that we should renounce this excess? Where people, is this disappointment of the people really just a sign of 
immaturity, they wanted too much, and so on and so on. Were they utopians or is the ongoing financial uh, meltdown, the ongoing financial crisis, a proof that it is perhaps today's global capitalism which is in its own way utopian. But nonetheless, one, what one has to admit, and with this I would like really to begin, is a defeat, a real defeat. A defeat in the sense that uh, uh, I don't think we even took into account the dimensions of this defeat of the left. Look, first, you are here almost an exception, a wonderful exception now under Obama, but I think that you can uh, observe now in many European countries, almost in a, with a, in a clinical purity, the process of disintegration of the old, even social democratic welfare state left. First, it was the communist state socialism left. Then, now, with 20 years of delay, this left is disappearing. You can see this in West Germany. You can see this in France, and so on, and so on. I think, if you ask me, we are moving towards a new state where the opposition, and this is already the situation in Poland today, the opposition will no longer be between welfare state, social democracy, and some kind of Christian populist conservatives, but more between a kind of a mainstream liberal, tolerant, capitalist, with all the political correctness included, but at the same time, economic liberalism, market, and so on, a mainstream party, and then, on the right, a populist reaction to it. So the choice is between politically correct, whatever you want, liberal, pro-capitalist mainstream and uh, populist reactions were, to make things even worse, the only ones who dare to mention obscene notions like workers and so on are usually the right-wing populists. The, whatever remains of the left, at, at least in Europe, they are so terrorized of being accused, caught in the old 19th century paradigm or whatever, that they are afraid of even mentioning mentioning the term working class. Most of them spent all their propaganda convincing themselves and others that we are really the party of this new postmodern dynamic digital capitalists and so on and so on. So where are we then? What happens in this defeat? Uh, let me give you another example. Sorry, I'm losing time, but please count this already as a debate. I'm answering questions. My own questions, but who cares? No, uh, look, the only really interesting economic proposal from the left of the last decades that I am aware of is the so-called uh, uh, basic income or basic rent proposal. I think it's almost a symptom of our state today. It's, I claim, an impossible dream. The dream that capitalism itself, that we can keep it and make it work in a socialist way, as it were. It has one very good, you know what's the basic idea. The basic idea is that each citizen, independently of his status, it has nothing to do with our employment, should be guaranteed, should get from the state a certain minimal income which enables him or her uh, survival with a minimally decent standard of living. Uh, the idea is that in this way, you solve the problem of unemployment, you solve the problem of, uh, of uh, consumerism, because like, by giving money to the people, you will have enough uh, demand on the market to prevent crisis, and so on and so on. Then, one element which really is attractive to me, that the, we know all that in the market, the one who sells his work is in a, his labor force, rather, is in a, under, an underprivileged situation. Like, you don't have really a choice. You have to sell yourself to survive. Here, the choice to work or not would have been a real choice. Like, you do it or you can say, no, I will not work. The, but the problem here is that if you try to locate this proposal into a classic Marxist perspective, you see how crazy it looks. First, it's a rent. This is why in Brazil they are right to call it uh, renta basica, the basic rent. So already today we have 
Rent emerging as the main source of the profit in new digital industries, it's clear that what, what uh, the source of uh, Bill Gates' wealth is not the old profit, it's rent. Bill Gates is doing, to give you a simple explanation, I developed this in my uh, new book in the last chapter, the way I read Bill Gates' wealth is that, I know you can play these boring old Marxist games that, that it's extra, extra profit from the, I don't think it really works, it's rent. In what sense? We should be here, go to the end, critical of Marx himself were needed. You know, Marx had that wonderful insight in the famous passage from his Grundrisse into how, with the key role of knowledge, in the production process in all senses, from scientific knowledge to expertise. Time, this so-called labor theory of value with time spent of labor and the source of value becomes meaningless. And Marx then uses this famous term general intellect, that the true source of values is the collective knowledge, as it were. But, uh, so, but Marx is here also at his lowest. He comes very close to a simplistic expectation that this means when capitalism will reach this level, it will simply collapse. He says it will become meaningless because labor, time spent on labor is no longer the source of value. Now, what Marx was not able to imagine, I think, is this, what he calls uh, uh, general intellect, collective knowledge, that it can itself be privatized and then sold if you are in a monopoly position to market it, sold for not so much for profit as for rent. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I think quite a good theory that this is what is happening today. On the one hand, we have people like Bill Gates, he succeeded through his market manipulation. I mean, every idiot knows that Microsoft is by far not the best program. <laughs> Why do we all use it? Because it's re he occupies the de facto, more or less, monopoly position, so it's not profit. We are paying the rent to be able to participate in the general intellect, as it were. That's what Marx didn't quite get it. On the other hand, Marx made another wonderful mistake uh, when he insisted on that the only source of value is labor and so on. He gives a very unfortunate example, although his theory is right, of example, namely of oil. But exactly today, oil is a source again, but it's not profit, it's rent. And what I'm claiming is that if we add to all this, even the basic rent, then we have from the orthodox Marxist standpoint an absurd situation where we have a narrow productive core of old-fashioned workers and capitalists, and basically the large majority of society just exploits them. Those who collect rent, the, uh, those who have uh, natural resources and those who don't work. For me, the conclusion is not that we should drop all these notions, proletarian exploitation and so on, but we should really redefine them. Another nice ironic point about basic rent idea is that, for example, in Europe, the great proponent of basic rent is Tony Negri. But it's funny. Tony Negri proposed in the last decade uh, 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 Two or one idea in two aspects which I think are proven false. One is, you know, the whole idea of empire is that sovereign state power, nation state is diminishing more and more negligible and so on and so on. And also, you know, we are all uh, nomadic, moving, all this Delesian poetry, so who cares if you are citizen or not. But wait a minute, the whole point of basic rent is an extremely important role of a central state who acknowledges you as a citizen. It's a rent for the privilege to be a citizen of a certain state. This is, I think, kind of a living dialectic, how I admire this irony of how a theoretician who spent all his time advocating a certain line of thought, empire, no, uh, diminishing role of the state, then makes a proposal which runs ag exactly runs against. The dream is, as it is clear, you should read the guy, he's interesting, Robert Van Paris, a Belgian, I think, sociologist, who developed this notion of, of uh, basic income or basic rent. His idea is that this is the only way to legitimize 
capitalism. I think it's yet another dream. But again, I read this as the sign of a defeat. Defeat in the sense that the most radical imagination today, imagination in the sense of something which really has the trust to realize itself, is you accept capitalism as it is, just you dream of, of a perfect welfare state, how should I put it? It's a perfect welfare state dream. Now, how does this defeat then function? I want to quote here Alain Badiou, who described three distinct ways for a revolutionary movement to fail. First, there is, of course, a direct defeat. You are simply crushed by the enemy forces. Then there is a defeat in the victory itself. One wins over the enemy, temporarily at least, by way of taking over the main power agenda of the enemy. This should be like either parliamentary democracy or communist so-called totalitarianism, like you end up imitating the enemy. And then, but you claims there is the most authentic, but also the most terrifying mode of the defeat, guided by the correct in instinct, telling us that every solidification of the revolution into a new state power equals its betrayal, but unable to invent or impose on social reality a truly alternative social order, the revolutionary movement engages in a desperate strategy of protecting its purity by the ultra-leftist resort to all destructive terror, whatever you want, Chinese Cultural Revolution, uh, Khmer Rouge, and so on. But you aptly calls this last version the sacrificial temptation of the void, a quote from Badiou. One of the great Maoist slogans from the Red Years was, dare to fight, dare to win. But we know that if it is not easy to follow this slogan, if subjectivity is afraid not so much to fight but to win, it is because struggle exposes it to a simple failure. The attack didn't succeed, while victory exposes it to the most fearsome form of failure. The awareness that one won in vain, that victory prepares repetition, restoration. It is from here that the sacrificial temptation of the void comes. The most fearsome enemy of the politics of emancipation is not the repression by the established order, it is the interiority of nihilism and the cruelty without limits which can accompany its void." End of quote. It sounds deep, almost Heideggerian, that uh, you know, the greatest danger is the inherent nihilism of the revolutionary project itself. But nonetheless, what Badiou is effectively saying here is the exact opposite of Mao's dare to win. You should be afraid to win, to take power, to establish a new social political reality, because the lesson of the 20th century is that victory either ends in restoration, return to the state power logic, or gets caught into the infernal cycle of self-destructive purification. This is why Badiou proposes to replace this 20th century revolutionary logic with what he calls subtraction. Instead of winning, taking over power, one maintains a distance toward state power, one subtracts from the domain of state power, one creates small spaces outside state power. Again, sympathetic as this proposal is, I think we simply pay too high a price for it. It simply means, and Badiou does accept this conclusion, that to put it in blunt terms, we don't fight capitalism. Badiou explicitly claims this. He says he never understood what does it mean to fight capitalism. He even, at one point, and I have here my Stalinist mind, he said this in one obscure interview in Italy, and I caught him there, it's all in my black book, no? Where he said, but capitalism is like the air we are breathing, how can you fight it? And so on. Okay, maybe this is true. I mean, it's easy to laugh at him. The problem is very real. But what I'm saying is that we should at least really admit the problem. I mean, capitalism in some sense did effectively win the it's the capitalist ideology in its most, most basic components. It's the air we are breathing today. 
And here, following Badiou, I would like to introduce a distinction between referring to uh, Benjamin, different types of violence, but you has a wonderful proposal to distinguish between constitutive and constituted ideology. Constituted is secondary empirical ideology, like or, uh, obvious examples of perversion, of false reasoning, of crazy ideological paranoia, while constitutive ideology is a much more dangerous formal ideology, a very invisible form of how you reason. And I will try immediately uh, now to uh, demonstrate how this works, for example, apropos of the healthcare debate that you have now. All those, and I'm the first to enjoy them, I love them, Sarah Palin style, I, I'm dangerous here, I warn you. The only TV station that I watch here is Fox News, of course. The, the only funny one. <laughs> no, what I mean, you know, all this madness of... Uh, of, of, of uh, uh, Obama already preparing that uh, death panels which will decide who dies or not, or even nicer, my favorite one, it really gives me some kind of intellectual orgasm, is I read somewhere that Obama is already secretly constructing 3,000 small concentration camps around the United States, and then on a certain night all the patriotic Americans will be arrested there. And I read even... A, Further point, which I like, that Obama knows that American police force is too patriotic to be confided with this task of guarding patriots there, so he's secretly importing policemen with Chavez. <laughs> Remember where you are. Okay, these are jokes. But then we have a much more fundamental level, which is the level of all the topic of the freedom of choice, freedom we choose. There, we don't love, their ideology works. Even those who know all oh, those crazy right-wing lunatics and so on will say, but nonetheless, what about, you know, freedom, the choice is the, how to put it, uh, dangerous part of ideology. And this is the problem. This, fund this determines the field which then obliterates many things. How does this work? I will repeat an old story. A year ago, I was, had a misfortune to have a public debate with Bernard-Henri Lévy at New York Public Library. I remember what happened. He made a pathetic case for liberal tolerance. Something like, would you not like to live in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it? Where women are free to dress the way they like and choose the men they love and so on and so on. I made a similarly pathetic case for communism with the growing food crisis, ecological crisis, and so on, with the rise of new walls between countries. Is there not a need to find a new collective mode of action which radically differs from market as well as from state administration? Now, the catch is, of course, that if you put it in this general way, we all agree. What can I say? No, I don't want women to choose their partners. Even Bernard-Henri Lévy, to his, to his almost, I'm tempted to say, honor, he said, oh, wait a minute, is this is communism, I am a communist, and so on. This was precisely for me the proof that we were both within ideology. We were fighting too much at the level of what I called constituted ideology. We shared some frame. Which, what is the function of this frame? To make invisible what I am tempted to call the background sound. You know, of course we all like women to dress the way they want, to choose a man they love, blah, blah, blah. But again, what does this mean to claim this in a concrete global constellation? You know, does this justify bombing, bombing or whatever? What does this do and so on and so on? This invisible background is the point. Why don't we see this background? Because precisely of the depth of our immersion into ideology, and its main feature today is, I think, what some analysts call, this is the strength of today, today's capitalism, to present itself as cultural capitalism. What do I mean by this? Here is a wonderful case of the so-called cultural capitalism brought to extreme. Recently, I saw the publicity for Tom's Shoes, a company found in 2006, now I read from their publicity, on a sim founded on a simple premise. With every pair you purchase, Tom's will give a pair of new shoes to a child in need. One for one. 
Using the purchasing power of individuals to benefit the greater good is what we are all about. Of the planet 6 billion people, 4 billion live in conditions inconceivable to many. Let's take a step towards a better tomorrow. End of quote. The motto one for one provides the key to unravel the ideological mechanism that sustains Tom's truth. The very relationship between egotistic consumerism and altruistic charity becomes one of exchange. That is to say, the, let's call it ironically, scene of consumerism, buying a new pair of shoes, is paid for and thereby erased by the awareness that one of those who really need shoes gets another pair for free. The process thus reaches its climax. The very participating in consumerist activities is simultaneously presented as participation in the struggle against the evils ultimately caused by capitalist consumerism. And okay, I don't want here to lose too much time uh, uh, repeating my old examples, but this is why I really hate, like, take this personally, I really hate Starbucks coffee. They are it. You know, you cannot even, it, you know, the only moment when I was really tempted to become a brutal consumerist was when I enter Starbucks coffee and you get there the message, which is, okay, we cost a little bit more, but when you buy a cup of coffee, as they repeat you again, you are not just buying a cappuccino. You are buying with it an ethics of community. You meet friends there. We support rainforest. We support uh, starving children in Guatemala. And, and I'm almost tempted to say, no, I want a cup of coffee. I don't, don't want those... Screw children in Guatemala and so on. Don't mess with that. But you see the operation is that the, the act of consumerism is, as it were, its own opposite. You know, this is the ideological profit that you are paying. You are literally, you know, it is as if, you know, sometimes you have the price analysis, tax so much and so on. I would like to see in an honest left-wing dictatorship, when you get the bill from Starbucks, let's say it's two and a half, it's, I don't know, 30 cents tax, one dollar coffee, and one dollar the ideology that you buy or whatever. <laughs> Which is precisely this ideological satisfaction, you see, I'm not just buying things, I'm doing something. I'm helping rainforest, I'm all that, all that. In this way, even Che Guevara became the icon signifying all and nothing. That is to say, whatever you want it to signify. Youth rebellion against authoritarianism, solidarity with the poor and exploited, saintliness, up to the liberal communist entrepreneurial spirit of working for the good of all. A couple of years ago, even a high Vatican representative uh, proclaimed that the celebration of Che is to be understood as the admiration of a man who risked and gave his life for the good of others. But as usual, harmless beatification is mixed with its opposite, obscene commodification. Recently, a friend from Australia sent me a publicity motto of an Australian company which put on the market a cherry Guevara ice cream, focusing its promotion on the eating experience, of course. Here is the description. The revolutionary struggle of the cherries was squashed as they were trapped between two layers of chocolate. May their memory live in your mouth and so on and so on. You see, that's a joke, but it's a very effective joke. That is to say, this is the triumph of today's capitalism. An entire ideological, historical narrative is constructed in which socialism appears as conservative, hierarchic, administrative, so that the lesson of 68 which was basically, we tend to forget this, basically an anti-capitalist protest, all of a sudden becomes goodbye Mr. Socialism, the true revolution is that of postmodern cultural, uh, uh, cultural uh, capitalism and so on and so on. This, again, as I already said, this, what should I call it, material force of ideology is directly palpable in the ongoing uh, debate about healthcare reform. We are here at the very nerve center of the liberal ideology, the freedom of choice. This especially holds today in the era when sociologists like Ulrich Beck called 
our era risk society, when the ruling ideology tries to sell us the very insecurity caused by the dismantling of the welfare state as the opportunity for new freedoms. You have to change job every year, relying on short-term contracts instead of a long-term stable appointment. Why not see it as the liberation from the constraints of a fixed job, as the chance to reinvent yourself again and again, to become aware of and realize hidden potentials of your personality? You can no longer rely on a standard health insurance and retirement plan so that you have to opt for additional coverage. Why not perceive it as an opportunity to choose either better life now or long-term security? And if this predicament causes you anxiety, uh, today's ideologists will immediately accuse you of being unable to assume full freedom, of the escape from freedom, of the immature sticking to old stable forms. Uh, even better, when this is when this situation is inscribed into the ideology of the subject as a psychological individual pregnant with natural abilities, then we, as it were, automatically interpret all these changes as the result of our personalities, not as the result of me being thrown around by the market forces. To quote John Gray, we are forced to live as if we were free. The extreme case of this paradox of being forced to live as free is the way popular anti-consumerist ideology is recently dealing with the topic of poverty, presenting it as a matter of personal choice. Books and articles in popular lifestyle journals abound, which advise us how to step out of consumerism and adopt a way of life free of the compulsion to possess the latest products. The ideological bias of this solution is obvious. By way of presenting poverty as a free choice, it psychologizes an objective social predicament. Let me do a little bit of self-criticism of my nation. Janez Dernovšek, the Slovene president in the first years of the 20th century, a cold technocrat turned ridiculous self-taught New Ager, used to answer ordinary people's letters in a popular weekly magazine. In one of the letters, an old lady complained that due to her low retirement money, pension, she was not able to eat meat and to travel. The president's answer was that she should be glad about her predicament. Simple food without meat is healthier, and instead of the distractions of tourist travel, she should engage in a spiritually much more satisfying inner travel. It's like, don't travel outside, travel inside, and so on and so on. Uh, some of us remember the old infamous communist mantra against the bourgeois formal freedom. Ridiculous as it was, there is a moment of truth in the distinction between formal and actual freedom. Formal freedom is the freedom to choose within the coordinate of the existing power relations, while actual freedom grows when we can change the very coordinates of our Changes. The moment we approach the healthcare debate in this way, the freedom to choose appears in a different way. If the healthcare reform will pass, a large part of your population will be effectively delivered of the very dubious freedom to worry about who will cover their illness, to find a way in the intricate network of financial and other decisions. Being able to take the basic healthcare as for granted to count on it like one counts on water or electricity supply without worrying to choose the water or electricity company, they will simply gain more time and energy to dedicate their lives to other things. So again, we should accept this topic, freedom of choice. But you know, the catch is first, where is freedom of choice actually of some value. Like, I'm sorry, but I wouldn't like to live in a society where, for example, I would have to choose electricity. Like, this would be a nightmare society. I prefer this thing simply to be in the background. Why not do the same for healthcare? I mean, it can be done. Look at Europe. Everybody says Canada it doesn't work. I was recently in Norway, not a communist country. 
but a country with an extremely high degree of some kind of, I don't know, it's part of their past or what, let's call it collective decision spirit. When the so-called crisis of postmodern capitalism, the fiasco of old, uh, old industries which like really produce objects with manual labor occurred, they did something unthinkable and according to our predictions of our liberal ideologists, impossible. Representatives of society, trade unions, even capitalist managers, met and made a large-scale decision. And it worked absolutely triumphantly. I'm not saying Norway is our ideal. I'm saying that we should stop this ideology of, you know, all large decision is automatically uh, nightmarish bureaucracy, uh, nightmarish bureaucracy and... Uh, 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 and so on and so on. So, <laughs> sorry, let me go on. Yeah, slight confusion. So, uh, again, the lesson to be learned is that the freedom of choice is something which actually functions only if a complex network of legal, educational, ethical, economic, and other conditions if this network is here as the invisible, thick background of the exercise of our freedom. Again, we shouldn't say, no, we want less freedom. We should say, wait a minute, freedom is not in the air. And this is why, incidentally, also, even to have a functioning liberal state, you need more and more an extremely strong state. If anything, the Bush presidency is a proof of this. Where is this myth that the state is disappearing? There never in the history of humanity probably was a state machinery as strong as United States, regulating so many things and so on and so on. And I'm not criticizing even this. I'm saying that, you know, to, 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 to make choices, you always make choices against a certain background within a certain context and so on and so on. So that's the true problem. The true problem is what choices, what choices are neglected disappear if you focus on certain choices and so on and so on. This is the main task today, to render visible the thick invisible background, especially, now I move further, with regard to all these noble multiculturalist projects. One should always ask what is the concrete background? Let me take you an example which may be problematic for some of you when I recently visited, recently, okay, a year ago, Ramallah and Jerusalem. I learned that in Jerusalem, in the eastern part, the state of Israel is quietly carrying out a very expensive multi-year development plan in the so-called Holy Basin, the site of some of the most significant religious and national heritage sites just outside the walled old city. It's part of an effort to strengthen the state of Jerusalem as the capital of the state of Israel. The plan, parts of which have been outsourced to private groups, which are simultaneously buying Palestinian property, has drawn almost no public international scrutiny. As part of the plan, garbage dumps and wastelands are cleared and turned into lush gardens and parks, now already accessible to visitors who can walk along new footpaths and take in the majestic views along with new signs and displays which point out significant points of Jewish history. And conveniently, many of the unauthorized Palestinian houses had to be erased to create the space for the redevelopment of the era, of the area. This holy basin is an infinitely complicated landscape dotted with shrines and hidden treasures of the three major monotheistic religions. So that the official argument is that this site is developed for everyone's benefit. Jews, Muslims and Christians since it involves restoration which will draw more visitors to an area of exceptional global interest. However, as 
people from peace now noted, the plan aimed to create an ideological Jewish park which will determine Jewish dominance in the area. You know, this is the problem I have, and here I'm sympathetic with my friend Udi Aloni, who was recently attacked in New York Book Review for calls problematizing certain features of the Toronto Film Festival. It's not at all a question of, I would be, have been the first to be totally opposed to it, of boycotting uh, Jewish artists or whatever, and so on and so on. But I experienced this when I visited to support his film. I visited, but not as part of official invitation, as a private person, uh, a year ago, Jerusalem Film Festival. The way it was presented to me was, in all that madness of hatred around us, we are here in the middle, we are an island of tolerance, and so on and so on. I mean, it's ridiculous, an island of tolerance, but did they get it that precisely as such, their function was in a way to set the standard to render, this is the, to render invisible how? The very fact that they function there as an island of tolerance is based on the repression of Palestinians and so on and so on and so on. You know, so we should be, I claim, extremely sensitive, and that's my point, to this ideological uh, operation which obfuscates the very real cultural and economic violence which is usually sustaining this celebrated open multicultural whatever areas. Here one cannot but respect the brutal honesty of the first generation founders of the State of Israel who in no way obliterated the, let's call it, founding crime of establishing a new state. They openly admitted they have no right to the land of Palestina, and it is just their force against the force of the Palestinians. People tend to forget this today. I admire them. They were honest. I mean, the first, at least at this level, Ben-Gurion and so on. They never said, it's our sacred land. No, they said, no, we have no, I will give you a, a, a surprising quote. On 29th of April 1956, a group of Palestinians from Gaza that has crossed the border to plunder the harvest in uh, Nahal Oz Kibbutz field, Roy, a young Jewish member of the kibbutz who patrolled the fields, galloped towards them. Palestinians on his horse, brandishing a stick to chase them away. He was seized by the Palestinians, carried back, to, and then carried back to the Gaza Strip. When the United Nations returned his body, his eyes had been plucked out. Moshe Dayan, then the chief of staff, delivered the eulogy at his funeral, funeral in the, the following day. Listen to it. It's, it's breathtaking. Let us not, Diane speaking, let us not cast blame on the murderers today. What claim do we have against their mortal hatred of us? They have lived in the refugee camps of Gaza for the past eight years, while right before their eyes we have transformed the land and villages where they and their ancestors once lived into our own inheritance. It is not among the Arabs of Gaza, but in our own midst, that we must seek Roy's blood. How have we shut our eyes and refused to look squarely at our fate and see the destiny of our generation in all its brutality? Have we forgotten that this group of young people living in Nahal Oz, that kibbutz near the border, bears the burden of Gaza's gates on its shoulders, end of quote. Apart from the pure ideological manipulation, parallel between Roy and the blinded Samson, which plays a key role in the later IDF mythology, what cannot but strike the eye is the apparent non sequitur, the gap between the first and the second paragraph from this passage of Diane's speech. In the first paragraph, Diane openly admits that the Palestinians have the full right to hate the Israeli Jews since they took their land. His conclusion, however, is not the obvious admission of one's own guilt, but to fully accept the destiny of our generation in all its brutality. That is to say, to assume the burden, not of guilt, but of the war where might will be right where the stronger will win. 
The war was not about principles of justice. It was an exercise, yeah, uh, uh, 20 minutes, no, <laughs> in mythic violence, the insight totally obliterated by the recent Israelis' self-legitimization. And I think that uh, I'm ready to go very far in understanding the Israelis. I think, uh, again here, following uh, conversations with my good friend Udi Aloni, that uh, that precisely if we take into the account of all, all the complexity of the situation, we should apply also to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the old motto from 68, Soyons realistes demandons l'impossible. Let's be realists, let's demand the impossible. That is to say, if there is a lesson to be learned from the endlessly protracted negotiations in the Middle East, it is that the main obstacle to peace is precisely what is offered as a realistic solution, the two separate states. Although none of the two sides really want this solution, Israel would probably prefer a little bit of the West Bank that it is ready to seat, to seat, to become part of Jordan. And the Palestinians consider also the pre-67 Israel part of their land. So although none really, no, no, none of the two warring parties really wants the two-state solution, but nonetheless it is perceived somehow accepted by both sides as the only realistic feasible solution. What both sides exclude as an impossible dream is the simplest and most obvious solution, a binational secular state comprising all of Israel plus the occupied territories, West Bank and Gaza. Now, to those who dismiss the binational state as a utopian dream disqualified by the long history of hatred and violence, I, following Udi Aloni, have here a simple reply. Maybe, but far from being utopian, is it not that the binational state already is a fact? It is the reality of today's Israel and West Bank. It is de facto one state. The entire territory is de facto controlled by one sovereign power, the state of Israel, divided by internal borders, so that the task should rather be to abolish the apartheid and transform it into a secular democratic state. I'm not saying this will happen. I'm just saying if this will not happen, it will just endlessly go. Obviously, although I'm more on Palestinian side, but obviously both sides are somehow in love with this indefinite protraction. Israel, for, for obvious reasons, they're slowly cutting, slicing the land and so on. Uh, so, uh, again, uh, uh, such crazy wagers may be the only way to fight today's moral vacuity, which is bombarding us. A film made by Anwar Congo and his friends, who are now respected politicians, but were gangsters and death squads leaders playing a key role in the 1966 killing of around two millions and a half of alleged communist sympathizers, mostly ethnic Chinese. Freeman is about killers who have won. After their victory, their crimes were not relegated to the status of the dirty secret, the founding crime whose traces are to be obliterated. On the contrary, they boast openly about the details of their massacres. For example, it's shocking. You can see in the camera, and they wanted to do this film. They are not caught on a secret camera. A guy who de describes with obvious pleasure or not even pleasure, just normal, like that it took him some 20, 30 rapes to discover that the most satisfying way to rape a woman is to, that you have a friend with a wire around her neck, pulling him down, strangling her, that it also gives you more satisfaction, and so on, and so on. And then in October 2007, the Indonesian State TV produced a talk show celebrating Anwar and his friends, and in the middle of this show, uh, after Anwar says that killings, their killings were inspired by gangster movies, the beaming moderator of the talk show turns to the camera and says, amazing, let's give Anwar Congo a round of applause. And then when she asks Anwar if he fears the revenge of the victim's relatives, Anwar answers, they can't. When they raise their hands, we will wipe them out. 
And again, the studio audience explodes into exuberant tears. I mean, it's absolute obscenity. Like, you think it's kind of a nightmarish dream. People openly applauded for explaining how they did with the models on Hollywood cinema. They even made it clear that that the only way to do the fix, to really do the killings, is that they imagine themselves as heroes of Hollywood gangster movies. Like they imagine themselves as James Cagney, as, so that they, it's very nice insight into, okay, nice, terrifying, into what kind of fiction they needed to be able to do it. But again, what is so absolutely depressing is that even this last level of shame that you find in Nazis, you know, like we did it secretly, falls down. You have simply people openly exchanging, you know, it was better to torture like this, you know, if you squeeze the ball in that way, it hurts more, whatever. It's, it's an absolute nightmare. What we should ask is how this is possible, but what we should absolutely not do, especially here, is playing the racist card. Of course, it's Indonesia, third world country, and so on and so on. Here, this should be the starting point for what we call the ethical catastrophe caused by the ongoing uh, globalization. And I don't have time to go further into it, but uh, uh, it's... And let's even not be so sure that this is limited to thir third world countries. I don't have time to go into it, but if you, if you follow what goes now in Italy with Berlusconi, it's not yet that, but it's approaching that. I mean, it's, you know, I never thought as an old leftist that I would live in a situation where we, the left, will become, let's call it, the defenders of civility of common decency and civility. In 68, we used fuck you, screw you, all that, to embarrass those in power. They are now the dirty guys, more and more. Look, Italy, it's something that sincerely worries me that happens there. You have a chief of state, de facto, who consciously ruins his own authority, makes fun of himself. It's really like uh, Michel Foucault in his late Seminars spoke about uboism, ubu, ubi, Alfred Jarry, Groucho Marx in power, clown in power, and th this is effectively approaching it. For example, I couldn't believe it. Now, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Berlusconi's press representative, a lawyer, said it's a dirty lie that Berlusconi is impotent. He is ready to prove in court that he is not impotent. I mean, like, I'm just asking what, how? I would like, uh, you know what I mean? And I, I think that uh, it's, and this is, uh, I, I had, I don't want, again, to take too much time, but it's, I see this as an all-around tendency, this uboization of power, loss of the dignity of power. And I think, again, that we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't be afraid to stand for common decency, civility, and so on and so on. The point is, of course, that this civility is not, is not the, this civility is not the civility of, uh, the civility of this, you know, bourgeois complacency, we treat each other nicely, and so on, and so on. It's the civility absolutely combined by the spirit of struggle. That's our task today. Civility with the spirit of struggle, no neutrality. You will tell me now I'm trying to sell you some totalitarian message. Maybe, but the one who put in best terms this totalitarian message is your own. I admire him for this, Mark Twain. Let me read you a passage from his a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court, where Mark Twain provides the best answer I know of to this boring reproach, ooh, Jacobin, French revolutionary terror. Here it is, your own, Mark Twain. There were two reigns of terror, if we would remember it and consider it. The one wrought in hot passion, the other in heartless cold blood. One shudders, our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror, the momentary terror, so to speak. Whereas, what is the horror of swift death by the axe? compared with lifelong death from hunger, cold, insult, cruelty, and heartbreak. 
A city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror, which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over. But all France could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror, that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us have been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserved. End of quote. And, you know, this is how we should function today. Like, you know, when people complain, for example, I am very critical of Hugo Chavez often, but when people complain, what about Chavez, for example, he nominated in a non-democratic way new members of the Constitutional Court. Okay, but I ask them, do you imply that the previous member were somehow democratically nominated or what? You know what? You know what? This is the problem. I mean, to see, to see things in the to see things in the perspective in this sense. Okay, now to conclude. So what can we do in this situation where, although we see ominous signs, I'm not afraid to use these moralistic terms, <laughs> ethical degradation, moral vacuity, total penetration by ideology and so on, does this mean we can't do anything? No, we can do. We can do quite many things and even if we cannot do it, we can do this, nothing, doing nothing in a, and with this I will conclude, if I have, the guys already left in panic. <laughs> uh, they are not the true hardline communists, they are the liberal softies. We need them now as fellow travelers. In the second stage we say, nice to meet you, here is a ticket to Gulag, one-way one ticket. No. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, what I'm saying is that even if the, the situation remains, appears almost invincible today, uh, we should always bear in mind the lesson first elaborated by Laboessy, the 16th century political theoretician, in his wonderful treatise on voluntary servitude. Sorry? Would you like to do closing remarks and then we'll just do a handful of questions? Ah, so now this is your revenge. You have. No, I okay, sorry. No, okay. I would like to keep you Okay, okay. So uh, allow me really just to conclude then, two, three okay. minutes. Okay. Uh, what I wanted first to present is a wonderful novel that I propose you to read it. Uh, uh, Ismail Kadare, the Albanian guy, The Palace of Dreams, an imaginary story of a, like, Turkey 19th century regime where there is a big ministry whose function is to read people's dreams and, and it's so nicely done that what this is about. They control the way they are aware that the reason people obey power is not simply oppression and so on, is they invest their dreams into it. Even if you hate the tyrant, you are often fascinated by him attached to. It's interesting to read from this point Soviet poet, poets from the Stalinist era. All of them, the greatest dissidents, Pasternak, Maldestam, they were all, you can see from private notes, in a very ambiguous way, fascinated by Stalin and so on. So what we can do, the first thing to do, and it's very important thing to do, it's the first part of what I call Bartleby politics, is I prefer not to in the sense of we stop to dream your dream. This is not unimportant, this is extremely important. This is a first step towards, towards ideological liberation. To gain, now it's uh, really the end, to gain this space of freedom, even religion can come handy. Well, if it works as religion, not, I like religion without God. I like religion as something which allows you a distance towards being immersed into existing reality. What kind of God do we get here in the religion I would like to see functioning? You are my superego. Conclusion. Uh, I heard recently a wonderful good old communist Bolshevik joke from 1920s. It's important because at that point they still uh, believed in farce of communist propaganda, it wouldn't have been possible later, joke about an able communist propagandist who, after his death, 
finds himself, of course, in hell. But being a wonderful propagandist, he quickly convinces there in hell the guards to let him go out and to heaven. When, after a week, the devil notices his absence, he quickly pays a visit to God up, demanding the return to hell what belongs to the devil, no, like I want my prisoner down there. However, immediately after devil addresses God, my Lord, God interrupts him, because, you know, he was already brainwashed by... God interrupts him. First, I'm not Lord, but a comrade. Second, are you crazy talking to fictions? I don't exist. And third, be short, otherwise I'll meet my party cell meeting. I'll miss it. This is God of today's radical left, a God who wholly became man, a comrade among us, crucified together with two social outcasts, and who not only doesn't exist, but himself knows this, and who entirely passes over into the love which binds together members of the Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost, if you don't know, is one of the first names for the emancipatory collective like the Communist Party. They called it Holy Ghost in that time. That's what we need today. Thanks very much.